Good morning. It's lovely to see so many of us and just like to say as we come together, eh, I'd love to encourage you, eh, if you're at home, if you haven't been back at church yet, eh, and if there isn't any medical advice for you to say that you shouldn't come out, I'd love to encourage you to come out and to join us. Eh, Church is one of the safest places you could be. We are far safer than a cafe or a restaurant. We have more restrictions than a cinema and we're certainly safer than a supermarket on an evening. Eh, We now, with our one metre distancing, have plenty of space and we'd love to invite you. If you have any questions or concerns, please reach out to one of our leadership team. We'd be happy to chat to you. But it'd be wonderful uh, to see you back out and with us. Robbie, thank you for reading uh, these words for us in Acts chapter 2 at the beginning of the church. The Spirit has come at uh, the very beginning here of Acts chapter 2, the tongues of fire, the different languages. And I want to take us on this little journey that we see almost of a blueprint of the very earliest church. And that, that journey is one that is lost to found, declare, and belong. I couldn't quite think of one letter to make it all flow together, but this is as close as we got. So Paul, if you could put that, perfect, thank you. So we find and we start with this group of people, this group of devout Jews that are present. Pentecost has happened. The most incredible of moments that I don't think any of us could quite fathom. We couldn't believe what it would look like. But we're told that there was this devout group of men, this devout group of Jewish men who had witnessed everything that had gone on in front of them. They'd seen the spirit move. And we're told in verses 12 and 13, they were perplexed. But some of them mocked and said, are these guys drunk? They didn't get it. They were lost. They were distanced. They were far from God. And I want to start with these guys briefly. We're going to go from here. We're going to go to to, to what happens through the most marvelous sermon that is preached here. And then we come to the next two bits of that journey. So here we are. The very beginning of the church, Pentecost. And we see this joyful worship. This just electric and literally fire worship. Just incredible of the spirit descending. But it confused many of them that didn't believe. They didn't get it. They saw it and thought, what is going on? They obviously doubted and they were sceptical. I wonder if you're sceptical. I'm sceptical about some things. I'm sceptical that a Tesco cheesecake doesn't actually serve six people. (laughs) I'm sceptical that my car doesn't actually do the miles per gallon. I'm told it does. I'm sceptical when I see the words award winning because everything seems to have won an award for something. Or I'm sceptical when Victoria tells me she'll be ready in five minutes. And I'm most definitely sceptical when I read the words one size fits all. People say I'm sceptical, but I don't believe them. Anyway, they assumed that the spirit working was too much wine. They assumed that they were drunk. This couldn't have been anything else but alcohol. But instead, it was the evidence of the coming of the Spirit that they missed. And the disciples hear this. They hear the doubts because, of course, they themselves, many, had doubted. Peter, of course, doubting on the water at Matthew 14. And even in his death and resurrection, some of Jesus' closest followers still doubted. So they, they could resonate with some of the doubt that they hear from these people, I'm sure. So Peter takes an opportunity, and he takes an opportunity to share the good news with this lost crowd. 
Verse 14, Peter lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So we start with the lost, the confused, the perplexed, the sinful and the desperate, those that are separated from God. And we move, we move through this most wonderful sermon that is preached that we'll break down in a little minute. But if you ever sat through a sermon, have you ever uh, listened to the word being opened and your heart was stirred? That every word that came from the lips of what was being spoken or what you read was spoken directly to your heart? Can you remember a time when the word has spoken crystal clearly to you? Maybe that is in church. Maybe that's in your quiet time or with a friend. Sunday. 26th of February, 2017. It was Victoria and I's first visit to this church. And we slipped into the back right-hand corner. And we had what was always a privilege of listening to our former senior pastor, David, preach. And I'll never forget that sermon because he preached Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the furnace from Daniel chapter 3. I'm sure some of you may remember it as well. And it spoke so clearly to me, and it speaks so clearly to me, that I go back and find it on SoundCloud sometimes and I listen to it. And David said this. They had hoped to get delivered from the furnace, but God instead met them in the furnace. They had thought that this experience would be the end of their lives, that it would destroy them, that it would finish them. But instead it became the greatest experience of their life, Because the furnace is the place that they met God in a way that they never had before. Those words were magnificent to me. Those words stirred my heart. And isn't it wonderful when the word of God speaks? I took assurance in those words. God doesn't always deliver us, but he is always with us. So what was it? What was it that Peter said that that convicted and that convinced these guys? Well, very simply and broken down, we won't go spend loads of time on all of this, but he simply declared that Jesus is alive. He declared that the Messiah that was dead and was buried now is alive. He quotes Joel and he says, the spirit that is here, he's here. The spirit that is written about is here. And he just walks through in this sermon, Jesus. He quotes David from the Psalms. He shows that the Old Testament points to Jesus. He declares that Jesus is alive and he sits at the right hand of the Father. He says, let all Israel know for certain that God has made him Lord and Jesus. Jesus is alive. That is the crux of this message to this group of of devout Jews, to this doubting group of people. A wonderful gospel presentation we find in Acts chapter 2. And then we come to verse 37, once he has spoken. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The sword of the Spirit cutting them to the heart. Through the preaching of the word, through the proclamation of the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, the crowd were cut to the heart. And the question is, what now should they do? 
There is a group far from God that the word has been preached and they have been convicted and convinced. So what happens now? That is where we come to verse 38. This is where I want to spend most of our time this morning. What is it that Peter tells them to do when they are cut open by the word, when they are convicted and convinced? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe, John the Baptist tells us in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. You see, at this moment of belief and repentance, of transformation, these people became members of the family of God. They became citizens of his kingdom. They became members of the universal church. And upon that moment, they belonged to the universal church. So following belief and repentance and acceptance of the gospel of Christ, what is somebody to do? To be baptized. A one-off event. A public declaration. Remember, John McKinnon a couple of weeks ago, two sacraments, baptism and communion. One is done frequently, one is done regularly in remembrance of what the Lord Jesus has done for us. And one in baptism is a one-off event in the life of a believer. Both are done in the context of the gathering of God's people. There's no such thing as a private baptism. That is because it is a public declaration. You know, we've had some wonderful baptismal services in this church, and I pray that we have many more in the years ahead. We listen to the testimony of believers. We listen to how the word has cut people open. Of how they have been convicted and convinced and how they have put their trust in the death and the resurrection of Lord Jesus. Because baptism is how we publicly identify ourselves with Jesus and with his people. It is how we visibly signify that we are united to Jesus through his death and his burial and his resurrection. The going down and the coming up. The death and the burial and the resurrection. Baptism is where our faith goes public. It is where we nail our colours to the mast of Jesus. And we believe as a Baptist church that baptism is a matter of obedience. Jesus instructed his disciples in the Great Commission to baptise. So we baptise those who have become disciples because we want to obey Jesus. We only baptise those who believe. Because they are those in the body of Christ through faith. Let me take a minute. What are the requirements for baptism? Interestingly here, we see spontaneous baptism. We see faith in baptism and then welcomed into the church. And interestingly, there are nine records of baptism and acts. Five of them are quick, four of them are ambiguous. And actually Luke records surprisingly few baptisms for the thousands that were converted we see thousands uh, converted and dozens of churches planted, but he only mentions nine instances of baptism and interestingly in Paul's full first missionary journey of Acts 13 to 14 there isn't a single mention of baptism here in Acts 2 we find 
many baptized, around 3,000. We find here a group of devout Jews, people who had a knowledge of Jesus, people who knew what he was about, people who had heard of the things that he had done. Jesus' culture was their culture, and Christ for them was the last piece of the puzzle that made sense, that made their uh, Judaism fulfilled. It brought them to Christ. Plus, they had just witnessed the Spirit of God fall on his people. And it's interesting because we don't really do spontaneous baptism. We don't believe that it's a normative practice for the church today. And interestingly, that's what church history teaches us. That we don't really see spontaneous baptism. Interestingly, the Didicat of the first century made their baptismal candidates fast for two days. And most interestingly, in the first century, eh, the fourth century, I found this far too interesting this week, I apologise. But Cyril of Jerusalem made every baptismal candidate attend a series of 40 lectures. Seems slightly intense. He did have some opposition, funnily enough. Is there genuine repentance? Is this person putting right their sinful relationships, their tendencies, their attitudes, and do they want to follow Jesus? Is there repentance from known sin? I think of Jesus and the adulterous woman in John chapter 8. She comes to faith and what does Jesus say to her? Go, but go and sin no more. It doesn't set for us our level of baptism as perfection, far from it. But there is an expectation as the Lord sets himself, there is a new creation, our lives would look different. Is this person trusting in Jesus for their salvation? Is this person submitting in all their ways to the things of Jesus? It would have been incredible to have had one of the apostles preach and their hearts cut open and just to have seen this visible, utter transformation of this group of people. We affirm believers' baptism as a Baptist church. And I must say, some of my favourite historians and historians are Presbyterians, and I love our Presbyterian brothers and sisters dearly, but the area of baptism is obviously one of our biggest disagreements. But as Baptists, we affirm that baptism is not for adults, but for believers. And I don't this morning want to explore the depths of covenant theology, but we can confidently declare this morning that baptism is set out in the New Testament for us as that for believers. And we read in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This promise is for the generations to come and this promise is for the Gentiles too. This promise is for everybody. This promise of union with God. And we come then to post-baptism. I can't picture the scene of these thousands, these many being baptized. It would have just been wonderful, next person in and in, and just, just seeing and being part of that transformation. And the result of it, we read in verse 41, at the end of this, we read that 3,000 were added to their number that day. What were the 3,000 added to? They were added to the local church. Because they were already part of the universal church. They were already part of the universal church upon their moment of salvation. 
What did they join? They became members of the local church. Is it biblical? Is it necessary? Is it helpful? And I want to take just a few moments to explain why as a Baptist church we believe that the answer to all three of those things is absolutely. Because when God saves, somebody instantly becomes a member of the body of Christ, the universal church. And the New Testament then expects believers to join themselves with specific local churches. In Acts 2 and 41, we see the 3,000 that were added to the local church upon baptism. And you notice the flow that we find in here. Lost to found, declaring belonging. They received the word, they believed. They were baptized and they were added. And again, just as as baptism is, church membership is a public declaration of our commitment to the local church. It follows a public declaration of faith. And we find it right here. And in Acts 2, we see this really close link between conversion and baptism and membership. We see people coming to faith and quickly declaring their faith in baptism and becoming part of and committing themselves to the local church. Because we believe that it is a command of the Bible in response to the gospel that saved us that it is important that we commit to the local church. It's clear that the early church kept records of those that were added. They kept a number on those that were coming into the fellowships. And okay, the Bible doesn't say, join a church, thus saith the Lord. But they kept their records. The Lord added to their numbers. We see if you you turn to Acts 15 and verses 22, you see that that members of the church are involved in the decision making in the life of the church because it seemed good to the elders and to the whole church. And in 1 Corinthians 12, we read of the members, the members of the body, the literal members, those who had joined and those who were a part of. What does it mean? What does all of this mean? What does it mean for us to be members of the local church? Next slide, please, Paul. What does it mean? It means that we affirm the priesthood of all believers. This is why this is so important. We affirm that every believer has access to God through the Lord Jesus. That there is no man closer to Jesus than another. That there is a responsibility on each and every one of us. It also affirms that there is a responsibility and a delight on each of us of regular corporate worship. We affirm that there is a responsibility on each of us to fellowship and commune together. And our attendance and participation shows our togetherness as a church, our communion together. Another of our responsibilities as we do frequently is we pray together. We pray for one another. We have a responsibility to bring our brothers and sisters before the Lord. We have a really active prayer chain in the life of the church that that is great for making requests known. And if you're a member of this church and aren't part of it, speak to Robbie and he'll get you sorted out. 
And it's our responsibility, each and every one of us, to stir each other up for love and good deeds. It involves us lending and giving what other church members need according to what we have. We consider what time, what finances we might give to the local congregation. We look out for one another. Our membership commits us to the local church. It gives us an active role to play. We have a part to play. And that part isn't passive. That doesn't mean that every member has a visible role in the life of the church. But one of the greatest blessings for me in this pandemic have been those who have taken the time to text or to call or to write a letter. Just to encourage. What a wonderful role of a church member that is. Not because they want anything, but just because they want to check in, they want to encourage, and they want to see how you're doing. It's wonderful. So let us be that committed and that prayerful, that generous, that encouraging church. Because we see here in Acts 2 the most wonderful journey. People that are far from God, that are convicted and convinced by the word of God, that declare their faith publicly and then committing to the local church. And if you want to see uh, what some of these local churches began to look like as they spread, the rest of the New Testament is a wonderful place to start. Would we commit to pray for our towns, our streets, that we might see more people on this journey, on this journey of lost to found? declaring to belonging and would we recognize that as members of the household of God we have a part to play how wonderful would it be to have a baptismal service in here and testimony after testimony was I stand here and testify today because this member of the church was bold enough to share their faith with me and I came to know Jesus would there be more boldness in us that we would see multitudes coming to faith in the Lord Jesus. How wonderful would 3,000 be? How long do we long for that for our country? That we would see many, many, many hear the word and come and know. Just want to put a couple of pictures up behind us as well. I thought it would be helpful just to put up a picture of our elders and our deacons that serve. In the coming weeks and the coming months, we're going to be looking at, at baptism and at membership classes. If you uh, are interested, if you would like to know more these are our leadership team, uh, so please get in contact with me or any of these guys. We'd love to chat to you. We'd love to explore because we believe that this stuff is important. Excuse the slightly old photo so everybody looks rather sad. But let us be a church that are committed to one another, that love one another, and that stir one another up for good works. Thanks, Paul. Let's just take a few moments and pray, shall we? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that from the very beginning of the church, your word has convicted and convinced that lives have been transformed, that millions have been through the waters of baptism to declare Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And from there, many more have joined the life of a local church, have committed to the local church to build one another up, to serve the church, 
to love one another, to pray for one another. And Lord, would that be us? Would we be a church that is committed in membership to one another, that loves one another, that looks out for one another, that prays earnestly, that is generous towards one another? We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us. Be with us and bless us, we pray. Amen.